So the other day, I'm watching a rerun of Lego Masters show with my son. And it's a show where you have these teams on a reality competition show that are using Lego to build these epic displays. And the challenge for this particular week was building scenes off of a movie genre. That's their inspiration. So it's like build a scene off a horror flick or a romance flick or an action movie, something like that. Now it seems pretty simple. When you think of a particular genre, there's certain elements that you expect to see. But like every good reality TV show, it had a twist in it. And at one point, maybe about three quarters of the way through the challenge, they added in a second genre. So now, instead of just creating a scene from an action flick, you've got to create a comedic action flick. Or you have to make a romantic horror movie. Now, I may be a child of the 80s, but horror usually involves machetes and chainsaws and things like that and people screaming. And how you make that into something romantic, beyond me. But they did. Sometimes, life just makes a mashup like that. And today's story does something similar. Now, let me give you a little bit of context as far as what's going on here as we're looking at um, in a turning point in Matthew's gospel. Jesus has just asked his disciples for the word on the street. He says, who do people say that I am? What's the, the trending word going around town about me? And some, <coughs> some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. And they turn, Jesus turns the question on his disciples and says, who do you say that I am? Always the spokesman that he is, Peter chimes up. Matthew 16, 16, where he says this, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. You, Jesus, are the one we've been waiting for. You are the one with power and with authority, with dominion. It's time, disciples, to gear up for battle because our Goliath is finally in town. And then, hearing that response, Jesus um, commends Peter for acknowledging who he is. But he says, don't tell anybody. Because this is um, <coughs> a truth that's not yet to be revealed. But he continues, after he has told them to, to kind of keep things super secret ninja quiet. He continues, in Matthew 16, verses 20 to 23, this is where we're really going to hang on to today. In this passage, it goes like this. Then he sternly ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. And Peter is like incompatible, does not compute, reset. Jesus, all right, you're the son of God, but this isn't how it goes. So let me straighten it out for you. Victory, suffering, being killed, or to term it miraculously, being murdered. Those aren't ideas that go together. This isn't what I expect, Jesus. You're doing this Messiah thing wrong. See, many previous texts um, in what we call the Old Testament describe how the Messiah would be. And Matthew, who was written to a Jewish audience who knew a lot, an audience that knew a lot of those um, ancient texts, he would, Matthew would often bring these up. And so, in that vein, 
Pastor Tim Keller brings up two of them, two of those previous passages that kind of like Peter's discussion with Jesus seems like they would be incompatible, but they're both describing the Messiah. One comes out of Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. It goes like this. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Now here, some of those ideas, those are the kind of things Peter had in his mind. But couple that with another passage also talking about the Messiah in Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 5 that go like this. Surely he has borne our infirmities and carried our diseases. Yet we accounted him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. None of Jesus' disciples thought that these ideas would go together, that they could possibly describe the same person. And Peter looks at Daniel's version and he likes what he sees. He likes those ideas of dominion and strength and authority, victory through might, through a closed fist. How does he come to that? How does he make that kind of connection? Well, I might be speculating a little bit here, but from what we know about Peter, it seems like he is the garden variety, blue collar guy's guy. I'm guessing he looked at Rome at, and thought, okay, these are people of power. And they ruled through might and through strength and through dom- uh, domination with a closed fist. And any, I mean, any culture that perfects the art of crucifixion has a certain flavor of power to them and intimidation to them. I'm guessing in Peter's mind, he's thinking that's how people of power function. You know, maybe he just wanted it to work out that way. Again, I may be speculating a little bit here, but knowing how Rome treated people, treated his own people, I'd probably want some eye for an eye revenge as well. I mean, as a fellow human being, if that was Peter's motivation for wanting it to go that way, I'd certainly get it. But Jesus reminds the disciples that that's a human way of thinking. He says in um, verse 23, says this, you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. So last week, as we opened up the study on doubt, we mentioned how doubts and how questions can come from a finite being trying to understand infinite ideas. And we never consider, um, or the disciples never consider that power might display not through a closed fist, but through an open hand. So where do we get our expectations from? You know, Christians often use the phrase having a relationship with God as a way of of taking the infinite and, and trying to describe it in something or use terms that will allow finite people to, to grasp it. And like Peter, we often bring certain expectations into relationships. You know, think about your your friendships or or a marriage relationship or a, um, you know people who are dating and that kind of relationship. We often, just as human beings, have certain expectations of how that's going to go and what that's going to look like. 
Maybe we can even carry that into our relationship with God. To think that it's transactional transactional or contractual. Like, if I'm faithful to you, God, then it's your job to bless me. I came to worship. I cracked open my Bible. I sent in my offering. Therefore, quid pro quo, I expect you're going to do something for me. But here's the thing. It doesn't always work that way. In relationships, really in general, just ask somebody who's been married. And the disciples, they expected Jesus to act a certain way, or they expected the Messiah to act a certain way. And if Jesus is the Messiah, as they are agreeing that he is, then they expect Jesus is going to act a certain way. I mean, that's what a Savior does for an oppressed people. But they didn't realize, maybe, that the idea of Savior referenced rescuing them from something far worse than Rome. It's as though Jesus said, I will exceed your expectations, but I won't live by them. Catch it? I will exceed your expectations. I will save you from something far bigger, far more dangerous than Rome, as we'll get to in a little bit. But I won't live by your expectations. Jesus even ups the antes as his words continue in verses 24 through 26, when he tells the disciples this. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life. It's like Jesus is saying, you want to experience the victory that I came to bring? Then follow me. It's Jesus' theme through most of his ministry. He says it over 80 times across the gospel writings. Now know this, we may experience that victory through the same means that Jesus uses to earn it. Meaning suffering hard times is not off the table. Hopefully it doesn't come to the, the words that he was saying about, you know, prophesying about what was going to happen, about him being murdered and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we often use the term discipleship for a single word for the idea of following Jesus, right? But what one goal of discipleship is looking more and more like Christ, like Jesus, as we mature in our faith. In fact, the term Christian means little Christ. So we... And our expectations become more like Jesus rather than Jesus succumbing to our expectations and, in a way, becoming more like us. We let Jesus shape our desires, our perspectives, our understanding of life, even if that means that he works through an open hand and saves through an open hand rather than a closed fist. So how is there victory in this kind of proposition? Jesus is talking about going to the people that he's supposed to to stomp into the ground. And he's going to be suffering under them. He's going to be tried under them. He's going to be murdered by them. How does that lead to victory? How do we, through Jesus, win the day by denying ourselves and taking taking up our cross as he says? Well, consider the line that Peter missed because he was sort of just stuck on this infinite loop on that idea of suffering. In verse 21, And on the third day, 
be raised. Speaking of himself, see an equivalent reminder here in Romans 6.5 when Paul is writing about sort of the, the intersection of how our life and how Jesus' life works together. He says in verse 5, he says this, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If I can dare to go back to a previous idea that I had brought up, remember that Jesus was saving his disciples and us from an enemy that was far worse and more oppressive than Rome. We read about what that is in Matthew 10.28. He says this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So what is that one thing that separates us from this powerful one who can end our souls and our bodies? It's sin. It's that thing that comes out when we tell Jesus, you're doing it wrong. Do it my way instead. Just as one example. I mean, keep in mind how this plays out. As Paul continues in his treatise in Romans 6 verses 10 and 11, he says this, The death he, Jesus, died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the one who was set apart, that's what he was anointed for. I mean, maybe Jesus knew what he was doing. So the next time life throws one of those mashups at you, and some curveball comes, not what you expected, and maybe you go, this isn't what I was looking for, or maybe a prayer doesn't get answered the way that you want. Maybe a new challenge just comes and whacks you upside the head. Make this your prayer. Jesus, show me your plan in this. Help my desires to line up with yours. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for lasting with us in those times when, when we doubt what you're doing, when we don't understand, when your plan and our expectations don't line up. Help us to trust you and to align our desires, our expectations, our perspectives and understandings in line with you and what you have in your good and pleasing and perfect plan. All this we pray in your name. Amen.